0: Human beings and our survival has depended on our ability to adapt. But through all the research that I've done and what I've found fascinating is that often our adaptation is unconscious. Yeah. Um, and to your point, it's imposed by external motivation. So it's when it's forced upon us, we are brilliant at adapting. I mean, you only have to look at how we've socially distanced and gone into lockdown. We've adapted because we've been forced to. Where we're not great and why I spend so much time trying to teach people is in actually disrupting ourselves so that we get better at being intentional in how we adapt and build those skills so that when the adaptation is imposed on us, we can still bring rational thought and meaning and intention to the forefront of the decisions we make rather than allowing other, ones, other people to make those decisions for us.
1: I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David?
2: Very well, thank you, Tim. I've eaten pasties, but I have not had a coffee in a pink cup.
1: That's sad. To make up for it, I've tried to brighten your day with pink hair, but I'm not sure that's helping much. So, <laughs>
2: No, nah, dude, I'm not feeling it, literally.
1: <laughs> we are also joined from Victoria, a place where the lockdown is um, far more oppressive uh, than here in South Australia, with Penny Lacasso. Thank you for joining us, Penny.
0: I'm absolutely delighted to be back with you too and we're managing it she says it, that
2: looking at his pink hair <laughs> <laughs> which means she really means it
0: <laughs> no I love pink hair i i i have two thumbs up for the pink hair i have hair envy thank you uh,
1: <laughs> because you know where you are um, unfortunately you're restricted and, and and can't get hair done and i guess why we're talking today is because in lieu of all of that uh, kind of restriction and 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 um social isolation you've made a very considerable effort to keep people connected as as you do
0: yeah um, kind of ironic because um when this all hit um i just finished my first book so i got a publishing deal in december and i wrote a book within three months and literally three days before we went into lockdown i finished the book
2: So you were just about to become free and able to go outside and look at the butterflies. (laughs) Ha, ha.
0: It was such an anti-climax on so many levels after reaching a major milestone bucket list thing that I'd wanted to do my whole life. And it was really interesting because the book editor rang me the following week when we went into lockdown and said, how are you feeling? You know, do you, do you still want to release the book as planned in September? Um, What are your thoughts? And I said, I feel like everything that I've done in the last five years has prepared me exactly for this moment. And now it's, it's, it's like, I didn't know what was going to come, but it was like I was doing my education in how to be able to navigate it in a way that was intentional and meaningful. And so that's kind of the beginning of how some of the stuff you're talking about started to come to fruition.
2: Yeah, once you believe it in yourself, then the ability to say it with genuine confidence, because it's coming from such a deep place to other people, hey, I think we should do this, and I think you might want to be involved because there's so many benefits to staying connected. There's so many benefits to reflecting, there's so many benefits to thinking about what positives you can personally get out of confronting these difficulties with a good attitude.
0: Yeah, and two things. I think first and foremost, I had been banging on about how important human connection was as a critical skill, you know, for us to be able to effectively navigate the future and how it was something that had been so obviously sidelined by the busy lives that we decided to live for at least 18 months to two years prior to this hitting. So when it hit, I knew exactly what people were going to need, I felt, when they were put in a position where they didn't have the choice anymore. So before they had the choice and they opted not to humanly connect in the way past generations have. But it's very different to when that choice is taken away and you realise that you don't even have the random human connection that you took for granted, you know, with the coffee shop owner or the person that you walk past in the street all of a sudden and it was like this oh shit moment and I'm like, I know exactly what people are gonna need and I'm gonna turn it on early and just see what happens. The other thing though, I think that was fascinating to me and I still believe this and look, five years ago when I was in corporate, I would never have said this. I would have said anyone that said it was woo woo and all the rest of it but I fundamentally believe and I've said this for so long. I think we have been fucking with nature for so long this is mother nature saying to us, you know what? I've been screaming at you for ages and you haven't listened to me. And so I'm going to put you in timeout, which is basically lockdown, send you to your room and you can't come out until you find a better way to live on this earth. That, and that's kind of how this all felt.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. Cause in the same way you felt like you were ready for it, I found myself, with a weird smile the first few days go hmm now everyone else knows what it's like to have limitations on them all the time
0: wow so talk to us about that david because your your experience like, again again you must feel completely prepared for a situation like this
2: yeah in reality the thing i've, I've always had to plan to do everything in the world because i have to work out how am i going to get there how am i going to use the cane how am i going to use public transport Do I need anyone's help? Can I do it without help? Can I get to a certain point without help? Everything is so much planning that it's actually easier to stay home. But I've always hated that because I get bored. So the irony is I've gone out by always planning and being organized, which means, you know, always, except for podcasts, being early. Not because I want to be early, but because I've already worked out all the things that can go wrong.
0: But talk to us then, because I'm really interested someone obviously that as you say that that that's never been able to see right and you've lived with these constraints your whole life but still chosen yeah, yeah to to step outside constantly and push yourself how has this changed your life?
2: Strangely a bit like you all it's really been is a confirmation that the work I've done to deal with being blind in a calm and constructive way I'd always wondered to what extent it would make me, you know, would it make me calm and constructive in other situations? And I think what I found in this is at no point have I felt anything but calm and still had the same normal desire to be constructive and find ways to either empower or entertain other people or make them feel included.
0: Mm.
2: So a bit like you, you know, in your sense, is an ultimate confirmation of how much change you've been through in five years in mind a really strange confirmation of literally all the choices since being the little kid with a cane who would go right i want to go to the shop and buy a carton of iced coffee now no one's around to give me a ride and i know they trust me to go do it on my own right off i go that you know really the decision started being made at about age eight and you know what am i now 48 so 40 years of practice to finally get a situation where i go ah this is really interesting watching people Not liking restriction and not knowing what to do about it. And I think the the most interesting thing for me, and I'm still waiting to see genuine evidence of it, is I'm still waiting for the point where people stop finding ways to entertain themselves on screens or by baking pretty cupcakes and actually start genuinely reflecting on what their life is about and what they want on the other side. I think there's plenty of talking heads saying the world has changed and will never be the same again. And at the moment, I don't actually believe them because that's a statement of what they wish would happen and I think all three of us wish we come out of this better than we went in but I'm not yet believing that most people have got from freaked out and entertaining themselves to shut down being freaked out to actually genuinely reflecting yet
0: I completely agree with you on so many levels um I, and which is why we've created space for conversation. And in those conversations, I've been asking some very interesting questions to try and get people to take that pause. Because what I've observed is um, like you say, people don't, a lot of people are saying they don't want things to go back to the way they were. Right. So people are saying, well, you know, we want things to be different, but I, I'm not convinced even though I'm an internal optimist that we are willing to go through the pain of what it's going to take to make things different, and I think that the real challenge is ahead of us. I, for things to be different, we'd need to fundamentally change our attach, attachment to capitalism and to um, money um, being sort of a definition of success. Um, I think. I don't know that we can let go of the busy. I've seen a lot of people, to your point, you know, a lot of people that have taken their busy lives into their busy isolation and just based, as you say, they've filled the space with, yeah, they might be baking bread now, but they're still filling every minute of every day because sitting alone with their own thoughts is too uncomfortable.
2: The reality is parcel delivery and Uber Eats still works. So you might be stuck in your cave, but you can still have most of the world delivered to your cave. Mm-hmm so amazon prime or playing for express shipping you know the poster you arrived you know here the other day to say for goodness sake don't order anything on standard rate shipping because all the warehouses in adelaide are full and it could be four weeks before anything gets processed make sure you go express because that stuff we have to get on time because that's our reputation so what it means is people haven't sat and pondered on their thoughts people have sat and shopped yeah the one positive I think all this means is even if they've been trying to entertain themselves, they've had to do it more deliberately. And being deliberate is the beginning to doing something different. Like you can't reflect until you decide to, you can't change until you decide to. And the first thing that comes before all of that is actually recognizing that you are not an accident. You are not blown by the wind. You are not pushed by the water. You are not squished into shape by gravity. You have the capacity to be deliberate. And once you realize that, you can do what you like with being deliberate. And I think a reasonable amount of people are at the point of realizing they have to be deliberate, but they haven't had the oh shit point yet of recognizing they have to make peace with their own thoughts.
1: So some of those junk values, I'm pulling that from um, Lost Connections by Joanne Hari, some of those junk values of trying to kind of fill this void, let's say, by internet shopping or whatever it is, it might be a normal practice for someone who has retail therapy on a weekly basis, but yeah. those things now cannot be social in the way that they once were. You might have gone dress shopping or whatever it is with your your friends. My fiance, for instance, just bought a wedding dress online and I guess didn't have that experience that I would expect, which is that you take your wedding party mm-hmm. to try all your dresses on. Totally fine was her preference anyway, but yeah. I would imagine that there are other examples of that you know that even some of the junk values or some of the things that are happening now like getting you know uh, ordering in you're not able to do with other people um and so the you know silver linings to some of the um things that were wrong with the way they were before you know whether all all the kind of social practices that were embedded with within some of our kind of junk values Um, have now been just completely compromised by our situation. So it's not as if those things were fueled by the social part. There's a a bit of reflection there as well, is that some of the things that we're diagnosing that were wrong with the way that we were living before aren't based in a need to have a a social life because they're existing without it.
2: Most people Mm -hmm. were already fairly alienated and isolated before this.
1: Yeah, I guess if you just wanted to be optimistic about it and say, oh, you know, this person's only engaging in, you know, they're only shopping all the time or whatever it is because it's a social event or, or gaming or, or something like that, you know, that you can't be optimistic about some of those things in the same ways. I don't. Yeah, think. but this is very
2: much a generational thing. I think Tim, if you look, your age group are incredibly social because you've essentially raised each other because parents were so busy and so many parents are divorced. As a generation, that's the normal numbers. But you get 10 years older than you, and most people surveyed say they have hardly anyone in their life they can talk to honestly and forthrightly. Mm. So, you know, I think this is where generational difference is very important. And the one thing here is once again, lots of people are spending tons of time on Zoom, but for the first time ever, that's deliberate. So, that to me is the win out of this is that instead of just running into someone because you know you do the same thing every saturday well setting the laptop up sitting at the table sitting in front of it sitting still is all very deliberate compared to the bumbling that used to be normal social behavior and that's a real positive
0: look i mean there's a whole host of conversation and articles out at the moment and zoom fatigue and how that's impacting people's brains and and the exhaustion people feel after being on zoom meetings all day but one thing i mean as some and, and i i must say I, I have a bit of a chuckle because i've been using zoom for years since it kind of came out yeah. and so it's not new to me i was more astounded by the fact that my, a lot all these people didn't know it existed yeah. <laughs> you know, like and there was like a novelty i was like wow and then i think what became really fascinating for me very quickly when we started running connection events and sort of workshops online was I'd never noticed, well, because I'd never run large group sessions on Zoom. We'd always kind of contain them to smaller groups intentionally. But when we got so many people coming to these sessions, it astounded me how it forced people to focus and listen to one another in a very different way to what people will in a room together. Because if they don't, they miss stuff, you know, and you do miss stuff when you're in a room together, but the level of care doesn't seem the same. Like. They actually really focus and intently listen, and um, I think that's been one of the things I've loved the most about running these sessions on Zoom is that people actually listen to each other, and when they listen to each other, they're seeking more to understand and empathise. And I see, like you know, with the Brady Bunch screen, I can I can see the light bulbs going off in a way that's different to what I've seen in the classroom, and that's shifted a perspective for me because my mindset has always been, you know, like. We've intentionally done things humanly because I'm so passionate about human connection and the power of learning through human connection when everyone's in the same room and the energy that creates. But I must say I've seen equally magical moments in different ways using Zoom that you couldn't get in a classroom because people are so focused and so intent on in listening to each other.
2: It's great because that's another form of deliberateness. And I'm glad you've seen that because from my perspective, teaching via Zoom is a nightmare.
0: Yeah. Well, don't don't get me hard on though. homeschooling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can understand that it would be. I mean, look, teaching. Full stop. I think that you won't. You would be hard-pressed to find a parent that doesn't appreciate schools at the moment and doesn't appreciate teachers in a way that they didn't before, because I think that there has been a very hard lesson in how hard it is to actually educate um, children especially when you've got a hell of a lot of other stuff going on, but it's a hard task to school your children. And, you know, we're schooling one, two, three, there's a classroom of 26 for most students. What? And the other thing that's made me realize is God, why you would ever want to homeschool is beyond me.
2: (laughs) Yeah. The people who've decided homeschooling is a good idea after this. And look, look, give yourself a cooling off period.
0: Look, my hat's off. If you've got the patience to do it and you feel that you're at the level where you could elevate your child like that in the context of how we currently teach, good luck to you. That's amazing. Mm. It's not something that I would want to do long-term. It's tough.
2: But it's interesting teaching young adults at university who are right at the point of being adults who want their independence and to be able to socialize and do their own thing. So I think this is you know, different age groups are going to have a very different experience of what it's like to be stuck in front of the laptop.
0: Yeah. And look, you know? the other thing I think that has become extremely apparent to me, I've been asked to do a number of webinars for large groups and I have to be completely honest, I can do it. And people say they're highly engaging and I try and use the technology as much, much as possible to get people doing things and feeling like it's a dialogue. No one wants to be talked at. No. That's why I don't love the webinar like, everyone's like, yeah, but you've got chat and all the rest of it. I'm like, yeah, but I find that as someone who is all about the dialogue and the back and forth, even when I speak on a stage, I'll get down in the audience and ask questions and interact. I find that one way talk at people. I, I don't enjoy it and equally... I. It's hard to find people that love to be talked at. So sitting and having to listen to a lecture for an hour, which I'm assuming they still do at university. It's been a while since I was there.
2: That's my problem is I don't lecture that way. I stop every 10 minutes and try and get questions and change directions on the basis. And -hmm. the thing is, in this environment, the two or three people who are willing to talk, you end up teaching to them. There's a whole group who are a mystery because you can't hear if they're typing on their laptop. You can't hear if they're breathing slowly.
0: See, I make, I've make. i been running these sessions with university students for a client that's brought me in and what astounded me first off the bat was how many of them have their cameras off. Yeah. And I just basically say as soon as they get on, on you can't participate if your camera's off. So if you can't have your camera on for any reason, that's fine, but jump in another session when you can because yeah. I won't deal with people hiding in these sessions because to yeah. me... It goes against the grain of everything that we do from a human perspective. And it's not fair. It's not fair that you can see me, but I can't see you. Yeah. So I'm curious, what, what have you guys found hard during this time?
1: I found it particularly hard doing these recordings without kind of having this face-to-face. I mean, it, it's good enough, but, you know, David, I, David and I have a practice of getting a burrito after every podcast recording. Just the little things like that I found hard. I think what's been most taxing on me is that I work in retail in an essential service. And that has been, in, yeah, just incredibly taxing on my mental health because I've witnessed the worst of how people are behaving when we all need to rally together. And I've taken it on board in ways that I shouldn't personally. And it's affected, you know, my willingness to go outside at all, aside from work, which I suppose we shouldn't be doing anyway. If there was one person I wanted to make an exception for, it would be my father. In this particular case, he's 72 and I couldn't justify even, you because you don't know if you're a carrier, I couldn't justify exposing myself to all these people who aren't respecting social distance at work and then going and and, and and seeing my dad, which I think the, the government rules, it, it was an exception to have um, your immediate family. You could go and see them. I'm not 100% sure on that. But if there was someone I would make an exception for or that I think would be reasonable, it would be my parents. Um, so not, not being able to see them has been particularly difficult. And I guess because they're of a generation where uh, connecting via zoom and all of that is just not quite the same they're not on the kind of digitally native l- level that it's it, it uh, and that is as um satisfying as what we're experiencing um the three of us here but um that i think that's been the hardest thing I, aside from that you know i've had a, i've made myself a lovely setup at home it's given me time to focus on some things that I wouldn't have had the time for and and, and set myself up in in certain ways. So um, it's, you know, it's been ups and downs, but I'm going to say on par not been as much of a struggle as I think others have experienced. Yeah.
2: I think like Tim, definitely the fact that we would sit and chat for 20 minutes before we recorded and then go get a burrito after or go get a burrito and then go get a beer. So the little things that go around activities, that are just easy to do because you're out in the world and you're interacting in the world in a nice way, that you're doing your thing, everyone else is doing everyone else's thing. And you sort of interact with the world without sort of crashing into it. So that ability to just, everyone was doing their own thing. I've got a close friend who lives three blocks away who had a stroke two weeks before all of this, who has major lung problems. So, you know, not having any legitimate reason to be able to reach out to someone who also doesn't have a lot of hearing. So for him technology just doesn't deliver very well. Mm. So, you know, not being able to connect with someone who really could benefit because again, um, you know, comorbidity is what this disease is all about. And if you're old, you've just had a major medical condition and you've got ongoing lung problems, you know, for him, this disease would probably be terminal. So you're yeah, not going out to see my mom and dad on the farm, you know, talking to them on the phone is pretty good, but the physical thing of being out in the middle of 75 acres. I found that particularly hard. I'm so much still residually a farm boy. And if I don't get my day of it a month, I sort of get a twitch. And there's not really a substitute for that twitch because, you know, going to a green space that's not a farm isn't the same. That's kind of a manicured artificial modern park for urbanites. It doesn't have the same feel, the same sound doesn't fulfill that same thing where it's it's not nature but neither is it hyper you know manicured urban environment
0: Mm. and
2: it's sort of probably my most comfortable place because it's sort of so central uh to identity
1: and yourself penny
0: again the irony you know of, of banging on about human connection for so long and how important it is and i knew it was important but i don't think i ever anticipated how it would make me feel not to be able to touch people. Yeah. And I am not someone who has experienced anxiety or depression or anything like that, and I'm certainly not proclaiming that has been the case. But I must say there's definitely been a sadness that I've not had before um, during this time. And I've been I've spent a lot of time perhaps differently to what you were saying earlier where I have been trying to understand my feelings and spent a lot of time alone thinking and processing because I'm not a big well I'm a big fan of not avoiding uh, feelings but actually understanding what well what's making you feel that way because often when you feel a certain way it's because you care about something it's alerting you to something that's important to you and um, I think that was really helpful for me because I was feeling sad and then when I realized it was because I couldn't touch people and I couldn't hug people the same way and I am, you know, a very physical person. Um, that was helpful. But then it also enabled me to flip my mindset and go, thank God I've got my nine year old son. Imagine, because I I was still getting a lot of affection from him, I still am. But it's like then I all I kept thinking, you know, because I always think one of the best ways to ground yourself when you are feeling a bit sad is to consider there's always people out there that are in a worse predicament than you. And I was like, imagine people who are living alone, who are in lockdown. And to your point, like I think of my dad and both of you, you know, have spoken about people that are vulnerable. You know, my dad's 77, he's disabled. He has not been able to go anywhere since this happened because he's extremely vulnerable because of a number of health conditions. And, you know, he's full isolation on his own and we're all FaceTiming him. Thankfully, he is very tech savvy for a 77 year old and, you know, he's on zoom and uh, we have family zoom meetings and stuff, but you know, I just, it just made me realize that even though I was sad, I still had so much more human connection than a lot of people.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about, you know, hugging and touch. It's a weird thing being blind because of course so many places, like if Tim and I are walking somewhere, I'll take his arm. If I'm doing anything with any of my friends, I'll just take an arm. So physical contact is such a normal part. Of what I do. And what I found really interesting is even in doing so many less things, you know, if I wander down to either the cafes I normally go to to get a coffee, now we can go back. The people who work there just immediately give me an arm to go put me on the one empty chair. No one hesitates. I haven't had to ask once. And yet, one of the things I was really wondering is okay, in a world where blind people need assistance, and that involves normally taking someone's arm. Mm. or getting them to show you something with their hands by showing you with your hands how are people going to feel and it was amazing like yesterday i had to to walk past the oxford hotel in north adelaide and it was great there was noise out the front i thought oh great they're going to reopen something must be going on and it was a couple of people sanding down all the tables out the front and the lady who was busy sanding just came straight up and said hey we've got the tables and bits it's blocking your way would you like me to walk you around i'm like thanks, that'd be great. She just like literally puts her arm in my hand, didn't even think.
0: Oh, David, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. But
2: But, that's that's the amazing thing. Some people just dealt with this Mm. and that's been lovely. So even though I'm not sure people are reflecting on how they want the world to be different and how to be different in it, what's been wonderful is the level of still being human when it comes to little things that I've encountered just as I've gone and done the little things, you know, every few days that let you encounter people. Base,
1: base level. Human connection. The base level of being a human because we've stripped away mm. all of these things that we're normally engaged in.
0: So that's a question I've been asking in sessions that we've been running. So we've been running this crazy idea that I had called human hour, which was all about given people in lockdown and people were working from home and homeschooling and, trying to navigate what this was going to look like and feeling completely overwhelmed, I was like, well, what if we could just give people an hour in their day, a virtual hour of happiness where we connected them with random strangers from all around the world and we did little activities that were scientifically proven to bring a little bit of joy into people's days. And one of the ways we did that was we would have a conversation about what it means to be human. And it was so, well, it still is. We run these sessions every week. And it's just so interesting to me because it's such a poignant question. But what's interesting is that most of us haven't considered this question for a very long bloody time, if at all. And we are human beings. And so if we don't ask ourselves this question and we don't connect with what it means to be human, how do we actually connect with the things that matter to us as a species? And the thing that's astounded me is fundamentally Everyone, when they answer this question, comes back to a pretty basic core that centres around being human is being connected to self, being connected to others and being connected to your environment. Now, I'm broad brushing that, but that's pretty much what comes up time and time again. It's all centred in connection, which is what our whole conversation has been about. What does it mean to you to be human?
1: Um yeah big question uh i'm mostly convinced and this is just completely colored by what i enjoy and what i find meaning in myself for myself is 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 establishing we're we're social creatures so i just i like establishing connections with other people i like finding things to admire and emulate things to admire in others and emulate that and kind of absorb some of the best things that I can see in other people. It's, it's probably something that I it's something that is in, in my core, I guess, is is watching things in other people that I admire. And then yeah, trying to absorb that in in into my in, in into my kind of identity structure. Which isn't to say necessarily that I identify myself based on other other people or like or based on other people's opinions or anything like that. It's it just just that I, I think there is a collective goal that if we, you know, if we can be better people, I'm, I'm, I'm all about being better every day or putting myself in a better position, we can take things that other people are doing well. I must admit, I haven't noticed as as much of that because you don't talk to as many people, but I've still been getting one of my favorite things, which has been having the these exact kinds of conversations, which is, is probably my favorite thing to do to have a really engaging conversation. So I've been fulfilling that need in some sense. And, and that, cause usually these conversations are informative. I've been taking that on board and I've been noticing changes in myself. So it has been an opportunity to grow, but not, not in terms of not, not relationally. <laughs>
0: yeah. I don't think there's any right answer to this question. I think the totally. answer is right for you. You know what I mean? And that's, what I keep saying to me, there's no right or wrong answer. It's what's meaningful for you. And I think that's why everyone comes up with a different definition, but it's interesting where the themes lie.
1: The patterns, you notice patterns.
0: Yeah. Oh, constantly. I love a pattern. (laughs) Yeah. What about you, David?
1: I'm going to start with a quote.
2: Well, not a quote, but a description of a paragraph by Camus, because it's always struck me as, the best explanation of what it is to be human that anyone's written, even though it's not complete and even though it's not perfect for me. And it's a paragraph in the myth of Sisyphus where he describes someone looking at the world going, this is absurd and kind of painful, but then looks to the side and sees another person with exactly the same expression. And then they smile at each other. Now it's all absurd but isn't it wonderful that we're trying to make sense of it and deal with it together rather than on our own. And I think that gets to something really essential about being human. It's not a perfect answer for me, but there's something in that that's pretty close to perfect in that being human for me means not really knowing who or what I am entirely, but knowing it, asking the question, is always important to continue to learn more, but the answer isn't just in your own experience. The answer's in recognizing that other people are asking and answering the same questions about who am I, what are we doing, what's the point, what should we make of this? Yeah. And recognizing that just knowing that someone else has got that same you know, recognition, this is absurd and a bit painful, but isn't it nice to know you're not in it on your own? I, I can't think tell you
0: how many times I've heard that. In the sessions that we run, constantly, people will get to the end and it's, they just say, it's like a weight has been lifted, it's totally unexpected and the one thing that I feel really strongly about is I'm not alone. Mm. And, and I find that so interesting that we still feel so alone. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I think I, I get you know, isolation is isolation. I mean, that is the term, but you know, people still feel alone when they're spending all day on zoom, Mm. which shows that the technological connection does not. um, It's great. And thank God we've got technology because it gives us some connection now, but I just do not think that it will ever replace what human connection can give us.
2: See, I wonder if people are learning. There's a difference between feeling alone and feeling lonely. Yes. Because Zoom should transcend lonely, but it can't transcend alone. And in the same way that this thing of having to be more deliberate, if people just start thinking about, hang on, am I feeling lonely or alone? And if it's alone, am I kind of comfortable with that? Because that's not a permanent thing. Yeah, It's like, well, I'm feeling alone now, but if I connect in some way, I can, you know, inform that differently. Whereas lonely is only other people now, so I don't have to think about me. Or there's different things going on and people have to make sense of them for themselves. But there is such a difference. You know, I don't know how we get to the bottom of how to help people engage. And when you've got a group of people and you know there is the equivalent of that back row of people in Zoom, like there would be in a lecture theatre. Who are just so still and quiet, and you know, they're smart humans, they chose to be there, which means you know, there's probably big things going on in their head. But are those big things satisfying enough when they're dealing with them on their own, or would they be more satisfying and transformative if they shared those things to some degree? Like, I vote for sharing at least with a few people fairly regularly to be more sure of what being human means and what you want to do with it because it's one of those contextual things you know you have a better sense like tim's comment about you know learning from other people by you know observing and going that's a neat thing i'll try my version yeah it's crazy to try and invent everything we do from our own perspective if we can be inspired by other people and try things on and do a bit of the whole fake it till you make it thing Give something a go until you find
0: your own version. Yeah, I always say the more you share an idea, the more it grows. Mm. So completely, I'm really interested. So we've spoken a little bit about the things we found challenging. Where have been the silver linings? Because I, I must say, if I we started with me with me me saying I was sad, the sadness has been small in the context of the joy that I've experienced. It's just that the sadness is profound because it's not something I personally am used to. But I've seen so much magic in this time and I'm really interested in the silver linings that you guys have experienced. Tim, do you wanna?
1: I have noticed in many of my, I guess, even social circles, so beyond just myself, that this has been a, a time and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to preface this. I'm not sure whether we've kind of talked, sorry, we've kind of talked about the um, broader society, about whether people have been taking stock and asking what it is we want from, you know, our way of life and whether we want it to continue the way it was or, or better and, uh, or or different rather. And, And if so, how different I have in my personal kind of, life and in in some of my close friends seen some people take stock of what they want to do with their time here specifically so m- mostly career things but also even even just hobbies and um interests and interesting things so i myself have kind of figured out a slightly different career path which has been fantastic and that's Given me a lot of confidence, actually, self-confidence, which is weird because the idea of what I want to do, which is go into further postgraduate study, is completely daunting, and you know, questions do come up of whether I'm capable of it. But the thing that has been such a silver lining is how right it feels. Yeah, kind of in my heart. Let's say it's just the, the the words that come to mind. I don't know how else to describe it, and I've noticed that for for other people um it, you know my friends it, it included and i have just even noticing things in the people that i surround myself with most of them most of them are most of them are teachers in korea but also just a, as a, a kind of societal role like a broader meaning of the word teacher it's been really weird that i i know a lot of actual teachers in my family and and i have friends who are actual school teachers or or, or like david who teach at university or even yourself penny who teaches in kind of a less institutionalized way (laughs) but broader than that there are a, a, a lot of people who are just role models learners and leaders it's been really interesting you kind of are a result of who you surround yourself with and the path that i've decided to take has just kind of more closely aligned with people who I surround myself with. So it's been really fulfilling, actually. I, I've, I don't want to say that I've enjoyed my time, but I almost don't want the this period to end in some sense. because mm. And maybe that's because I'm afraid that it will go back to how it was before. Yeah, But I've actually had, I mean, relationships aside, a pretty sweet time of it.
0: <laughs> well, I love the juxtaposition of what you're saying is that you don't want it to end... But equally, you know, it's not been sort of easy. Mm. And I think that that's interesting and it links to what David was saying earlier about people being alone with themselves and having the time to reflect and and look inwards. I think what I'm hearing from you is, and I say this all the time, growth occurs in discomfort. It occurs Mm. in pain. Nothing significant in terms of our development ever comes off the back of ease. Yeah. And I think that what you're experiencing, which I love when you say it's, it's just so right, is that it's been a painful process. But the clarity that it's given you to have this time of you know, reflection and contemplation and looking mm. inwards delivers results that you otherwise wouldn't have had if you were caught up in the noise of the old life.
1: No, absolutely. I, I, I like to draw a parallel between that personally as in the, the kind of personal struggles that, that we go through. But David and I have have conversations sometimes about how that happens on a societal level too. How basically things need to get worse before they get better. And it's, it's not, that doesn't just happen, you know, when you do a workout at the gym so you can get fit. It, it happens kind of broadly societally too. So I'm not sure how many economic crashes we'll need to go through before we start you know, banging down doors and, and asking for something different. But, These kinds of struggles uh, are are a process for something better. So, I guess for um, people out there struggling economically, um, especially because that's definitely happening, um, you know, we should be doing all, all we can to to help them out of that. But and it's sad that they're bearing the brunt of this in some sense. But the the nice thing is that there is some hope that that things, they'll, they'll be in a better position at some point. So, David. Yeah, it, I think there's sort
2: of two sides to it. Like you, the silver lining of watching people around me grow, which they, in most cases, again, you surround yourself with people who you have something in common with, and you and I both you know, like to grow and learn and change, so that's who we surround ourselves with. But seeing that most people have dealt with this stressor, and grown anyway mm. so for me the silver lining in that is cool it confirmed that what i've always believed that you know you need difficulty to get meaningful growth works and the, the second side of that is you know, i was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago called the unforgiving 60 and you know tim and i had done an episode before i recorded that with um you know ben and tim at the unforgiving 60 about the idea that you know, socially, we need struggle. We need hardship. And it doesn't need to be too big. But it does need to be enough to build confidence that we can cope and confidence that we'll adapt. Wow. And I'm hoping out of this that the silver lining is that enough people who had the confidence because they were natural growers now also have got the confidence to go, actually, I'm now willing to push harder for my own growth and push harder to define what a better society should look like, a better world should look like. Yeah, It's all well and good when I'm teaching 18, 19, 20-year-olds at university to say to them, you guys have to fix this. I can educate you. I can advise you if you need help later. As just another person whose brain to pick. But you are of the age where you need to start positioning yourselves to change this. And they just go, yeah, okay, um, gulp. Whereas I'm hoping enough of them will get beyond confidence now to confidence. And the great silver lining out of this may be, you know, in the same way they talk about the greatest generation coming out of the depression and then World War II. And it wasn't them themselves. It was them in conjunction with their experiences. Mm. That the first time since the greatest generation, we have a, may have a generation who won't be intimidated by what's in front of them.
1: Penny, can I ask what your silver lining is? And I, I want to follow this up because uh, what David just said has a really interesting tangent, but we'll uh, ask first. Yeah. yeah. What's, what's been your, I guess, silver lining.
0: Oh man, there's so many, so many. Um, I mean, I always say, you know, I, I teach people how to intentionally adapt, but it's a practice. Yeah. And I'm not perfect. And, the only difference is that I choose to get on the mat every single day with that practice. And some days I fall flat on my face and other days, you know, I'm really in the flow of it. I think of it a bit like yoga. Um, but what this has enabled me to do through creating space, um, because so much of my, like my, all of my public stuff was shut down overnight, like literally, it's created the space for me to look at that practice and how I can make it better. And so I'm practising being intentional, but it's just brought intention to the forefront. Or, you know, I love that David uses deliberate. Like, I think the word, the two words are very, you know, very intertwined. I, the silver linings are I have found so much pain, but equally so much joy in homeschooling my son and how that has connected us and how it's helped me understand in more deep detail the education system. And how schools have adapted to this situation or not, depending on the school. So, I've loved that. I've loved the way that I have had to let go because at the start I was like, right, I'm going to be the perfect parent and I'm going to homeschool and I'm going to run the business and do all of this stuff. And I'm a single parent, so I got there's no one else here for me to call on. I mean, the dog's not very good at homeschooling. And so, I learned very early on, again, to intentionally let go and say, you know what, this is a period of time where I'm gonna to have to reprioritize things and my son's education is important. And those days are going to mean that I am not gonna get as much work as I normally get done. And that is totally okay. Um, we spent a lot of time, we always did, but now we spend more time at the park, kicking the soccer ball. And we've had some magical experiences with random strangers. Um, who have been in the park and have been pro soccer players by chance because they've been displaced and ended up playing soccer for an hour and a half with my nine-year-old son. Like crazy stuff. My mum, my seven-year-old mother, who is absolute technophobe, we've taught her how to use Zoom and she retrained. uh, She was a farmer and she became a yoga instructor at the age of 60. So retrained in a new career and started teaching the elderly yoga to keep them mobile. And obviously when COVID hit, she got shut down. So my brother and I taught her how to use Zoom. We set her up, um, we created a website and she has been running yoga classes on Zoom for the last four weeks. And like, I shared that on LinkedIn and like 12,000 people viewed it and just said like, it was phenomenal. Like that, it's just, it's been magical. And the space that it's created to talk. I'd valued human connection, but I'd really valued human connection in terms of investing in relationships. And I think that I'd kind of really focused on relationships that I already had and I'd not considered those perhaps superficial relationships where we walk past someone in the street or the relationship with a coffee shop owner or the, you know, the, or the person you buy your coffee from every day or the person I walk the dog past in the park. And the silver lining in all of this is that people don't look down at their phone anymore when you walk past them in the street. Pretty much everyone I walk past now says hello. And the amount of random conversations that I've had with these strangers, my community, the relationship I now have with the uni students that work at the coffee shop, whose livelihood has depended on being able to sell takeaway coffees during this time when we've been in lockdown. Like it's, it's been magical and I'll never take those superficial relationships for granted again.
1: So in a time where we have anecdotally witnessed some very deliberate growth, or perhaps it it isn't, maybe it's incidental in some sense. This is a very cynical question, by the way. If that growth is incidental, do you think that it will be harder to learn to be intentionally adaptable when, I guess in some sense... Uh, the, the growth that maybe some people are experiencing in this time has been put upon them by the external circumstance.
0: Human beings and our survival has depended on our ability to adapt. But through all the research that I've done and what I've found fascinating is that often our adaptation is unconscious. Yeah. Um, and to your point, it's imposed by external motivation. So it's when it's forced upon us, We are brilliant at adapting. I mean, you only have to look at how we've socially distanced and gone into lockdown. We've adapted because we've been forced to. Where we're not great and why I spend so much time trying to teach people is in actually disrupting ourselves so that we get better at being intentional in how we adapt and build those skills so that when the adaptation is imposed on us we can still bring rational thought and meaning and intention to the forefront of the decisions we make rather than allowing other, ones, other people to make those decisions for us. And so I try and advocate constant self-disruption, which I think you guys play in the space of quite regularly, because I think the skills that it builds enable us to operate very differently when we are in these environments where crisis is imposed. My biggest fear, my biggest fear out of all of this... There's a term called hedonic adaptation, where we are very good at going back to the way we were. Basically, you know, it's like, for example, you win the lottery. You think the lottery is gonna make you happier. And you, yeah, your your happiness goes up in that moment that you win the lottery, but what happens is your baseline happiness, your your happiness will go back to whatever the baseline was before, even if you were just living on minimum wage. Yeah, it kind of goes up, but you rebase. And my worry is we've had this moment where we've kind of, we've had this spike and gone, oh, hang on, maybe some of this stuff matters to me. But in order to hang on to those things, there's going to be a lot of hard work when we go back to some sort of what we had before. And I think as humans we're very good at moving on and forgetting. And that's my fear. My fear is that we won't sit in the pain that it will take to drive the change that we need
1: especially if the conversation that we're having right now isn't broadcast to a wide audience let's say um you know 12,000 people is a massive massive amount of people to have witnessed and 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 engaged with 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 your post about your mom this is not a criticism certainly not uh, the whole population though how many people are getting that message so if the messaging Around all of this stays the same, people might not have the tools or or, or the awareness to even stop from going back to where it was.
0: I got approached, I've been approached by a lot of people. That's the one thing I've been astounded by since COVID hit. I think obviously a lot of people are trying to reinvent their businesses, which is no surprise, um, and um, trying to pivot or collaborate and things like that. But one person that reached out to me that I said, hell yes to. Um, was an amazing girl I know um, called Sophie, and she runs Humankind Enterprises. And her brilliance is in capturing the stories of our elderly generation and sharing them with communities so that they're not lost forever. And she uses technology to do that. And when all of this happened, she's equally as passionate as I am about shaping a different kind of future, one where we put humanity first, yeah, and... um, we don't, we don't ignore people. Um, we don't let people go without. Um, we seek to empathise and understand one another. We don't have to agree, um, but we treat each other with kindness. And uh, she reached out to me and she's working on a project which I'm very proud to be a part of, called Dear Australia. And what they are looking at doing is creating a platform to capture basically people's perspectives on what they want the shoot the future to look like like because you can't I mean David mentioned it earlier unless we can visualize what this I hate the word new normal I think that's just I don't I think we want a new crazy we don't want normal because normal's boring and it's not innovative enough but if you can't create something unless you're aware of it you know, unless you're aware of what you want it to be. So getting people to start with the end in mind and write a letter or letter, a sentence, a paragraph, dear Australia, this is what I want our future to look like. She's creating a platform for us to open up that conversation cross generation to be able to create awareness around what a different Australia would look like. And that's being launched in the next couple of weeks. And I think... This is the conversation we need to have. It's got to start with a conversation because it's got to be reflective of our population, all of our population, and all of the diversity that sits within it. But I think that conversation needs to be had now because otherwise we'll miss the moment. David, you've been very quiet.
2: Yeah, well, letting you you know unpack that completely. I, I suppose I'll go back to my fears in a sense, very similar, and that is if we look at the greatest generation. Their problems started in 1929 and ended in
0: 1945. Mm, it's a long period, isn't it? We're compli- Like we're all sitting here yeah. going, "Oh, this is so hard," and we're like eight weeks in, <laughs>
2: yeah, as opposed to 16 years.
0: Which is an example of how resilient we are. Yeah. No,
2: and this is sort of the fascinating thing. I was, I was unpacking it that you go, okay, that generation deal with authority well, very just ultimate believers in the fair go reconstructed the world. Their children rebelled against authority initially and became the hippies, Mm. but as they got older in the main gave into consumerism and property. So Mm. neither did they have their parents, um, sort of humbleness or their early connectedness. So what the thing is, it's quite clear, humans are so adaptable, we'll change to whatever the normal is when we're doing it. And if the normal was life was hard from 1921 to 1945, then life was good from the mid 1950s until the oil crash. Once it got harder again, to an incredible extent, I don't think we even want to admit as societies uh, affected by the temperature of the water, And that's going to have such an effect. So if we are to get really positive change, you go, that's going to largely be externally driven because it normally is. And that means this has to go on for a long time. And that's really bad. It's a case of like being the frog in the pot. Eventually the frog dies because the water gets too hot. If the temperature... Changes gradually, the frog doesn't even notice. Now, what we've had in the 20th century was the temperature changing dramatically and humans going in the other direction from either being too hot or too cold and being affected by that. And for all our supposed steadfastness, most of the major psychological studies actually say that humans change more in their life than they would ever want to admit or anyone around them would remember because everyone around you has changed just as much as time has gone on. So I end up in the terrible conundrum with this constantly, that to get a better outcome takes time. Pressure can either be society puts small pressures on people to grow them, but really we haven't had many sophisticated societies who've done that. And we don't want to go back to Sparta. You know, we don't want social engineering and putting eight year olds out in a, you know, a crappy cloak in the snow that's not the way to get the better outcome so having a pathogen be the definer of our future means we're not really taking control of it we're not really grabbing hold of it we're not really you know defining it and your point uh, penny about having to have the vision of it this is what terrifies me about our political leaders they're I can
0: give you the
2: tip. their, Their careers depend on their ideological consistency. So for them to change from their vision of how the world is, is a really big thing. And they can be advised and maybe they can be advised well. But the average person is reasonably flexible because we don't get judged on our consistency in the same way our political and economic elite do. They get judged on their consistency. The market and politics hinge on their consistency and their consistency is about to be our greatest problem. Mm, The pathogen is not a good teacher and they are not good adapters in the long run. And between the two, where's the consistent pressure for growth that is not a danger to the survival of our species?
1: So they're normal. They're normal in the way that that Penny was saying she wanted it to be crazy. Precisely. And
2: they've been picked for being normal and there's nothing wrong with being normal. You know, to get where they've got, it's a career of being normal to get there. Mm. But what they need to be to be leaders is abnormal. Correct. And we don't have abnormal leaders. We have abnormal people on podcasts.
0: Mm. Yeah, I don't believe the change we need is going to come from the government. And but But that said, one thing I will say is that I don't think anyone can criticise. Like, I don't think there would be a better place in the world to be than Australia, right? No, oh, in the our context. government
2: has done a remarkable job
0: and that's fantastic. fantastic.
2: But the, the switch back, the rubber band going flick on hedonic adaptation is my fear.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. And I don't think anyone would want to be in politics at the moment either. Like, I don't think it's. And that's
2: the problem. Real leaders would want to be there because it's like, okay, there's people out there who want a vision... For the future and a path to get there and they've been destabilised enough to not need me to be ideological consistent. Mm. If we actually had genuine leaders at any level in politics, this would be the time where they should look like superstars.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you only have to look at Jacinda Ardern. Just think that whether you are aligned with her political party or not is not the point. But she is willing to do things that most leaders, let's be honest, don't have yeah. the balls to do.
2: And if we're lucky, we'll see an entire country go, there's a vision, there's a plan, and what have we got to lose? There the is. problem is I can't see that she emerged out of a system that knowingly picked her. They mm. didn't know what they were getting.
0: No, 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 I don't I think you're
2: right. Yeah, It's not like they went, hey, she's the wild card for when things turn to shit. They had no clue. It's just the dumb luck that someone that competent went under the radar that long,
0: and they ended up in the series of crises. Like had the opportunity yes. through a series of unprecedented crises to really
2: to keep to growing cool. and pushing the limits because the situation kept demanding for the limits to be pushed.
1: Right. No one knew how terrible Chamberlain was going to be.
2: Oh well, nineteen thirties Britain.
1: Mm. Yeah,
2: he wasn't that terrible
1: well i mean he wasn't able to cope with the the threat in the same way that winston churchill might have or did <laughs> yeah but again there we had
2: to you know hope that a guy that flip-flopped changed side and self-medicated non-stop could save the world <laughs> we don't want to be relying on that <laughs>
1: Right. Okay. Right. 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 So it's not intentional in the way that you would hope that she would be elected, as well. No.
2: So what we can suggest is that randomly, there's a chunk of people in political or in positions of political and economic and cultural power, who, by dumb luck, circumvented hegemonic power of looking like the rest of their clique, and sorry, hedging our future on a pathogen, and random ability to avoid hegemonic control. People are too good for that to be all we can hope for or rely on. Individual humans are too good for that.
1: So is the point that we've come to so far in this discussion that in actual fact, it would be better for things to return to the way they were. So we have the opportunity to change them on our own terms.
0: No, no. Okay. I think if we go back to the way, we were. There is a comfort mm-hmm. that goes with that, and I think people will very quickly forget mm-hmm. the sourdough they were break baking while they were home, and, we the, and the and the joy that that bought them, and the slowness of life, and how that connected them with their family in a way that they hadn't before. I think, I think that it is very dangerous to. Like and that's why I love this term, the new normal. There is so much that we need to let go of that that just wasn't serving us, and we know it wasn't serving us. And I think it would be very dangerous to go back. And like David said, in some ways, the longer the pain, the more likely we are to change. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that.
2: Which is terrifying.
0: It is, but I mean, am I the only one sitting here going? I by no means think that we are at the end of this. I think that the pain hasn't really even begun. Like, I... No, if I it goes like Spanish
2: flu and we get a proper second wave, then we haven't even seen the beginning.
0: Yeah, and even the economic impact. Like, everyone's like, oh, people have lost jobs. And, yeah, they have, and it's horrible. But you wait in six months' time when that job seeker $1,500 a week, they won't, we can't keep printing money. No, no, this is the point, we
2: we can, it's no problem.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, but it it creates another problem, yeah. So, what happens in six months' time when, well, what happens in 1st of June when we go back to things being open and the reality is a lot of businesses that haven't folded do fold because there's not the demand that was there previously because we've got such an impact on consumer confidence, I'm guessing. Yeah, and then in six months' time, we've got a lot more people that are unemployed and we don't have the funds to keep paying people $1,500 a fortnight. Like, I just think we are at the beginning of the pain. Like, you saying 20 years or whatever it was for, you know, 16 years. I don't think this is going to be over in the next six months by any stretch.
2: No, which then changes the calculation so dramatically. So, at the moment, this is just a foretaste of, hey, humans. Guess what? You can be adaptable. Now, let's see what else gets thrown at you to see what you then do with your capacity to adapt. So we've had a nice test run. And I hate saying nice because there's an awful lot of dead people around the world. And there's an awful lot of people grieving. But still, relatively speaking to any year of World War II, this is a blurb.
0: I think we're going to have a lot of time. And that's probably... (laughs) I think that's probably the one thing that gives me hope. I think we will have a lot of time to continue to reflect. My biggest concern, um, you know, because I don't, my gut says to me this won't be the last time we go into lockdown. My biggest concern, I think, second to flattening this curve as we talk about or delaying the pain as I like to think of it, is the mental health of people. We've got more chance of our society being impacted by suicide than we have of deaths of COVID off the back of what's to come.
2: Yeah, and that's an interesting one because you look at World War II and when aerial bombing started, there was an assumption that huge amounts of people would break psychologically. And what actually happened, that those were going to break, broke early and en masse and then the rate after that was very slow. Mm. So if we get like round two lockdown, what we're likely to see is that psychological crises will happen very quickly and at a big scale, but after that will slow dramatically. Because mm. you know what all the research in World War II said is that the people who were going to find a way to cope tended to, and the people who weren't, just it became overwhelming very quickly.
1: Yeah. So that would suggest that you need to ramp up the preventative measures very quickly.
2: Yeah, well, when we haven't coped with it at a normal level, I'm not sure we have the resources or even know how to apply them. You uh, should area, try. <laughs> the oh, I don't area know how. of
0: that area of um, whatever body it is, I read the last, was it two weeks ago, basically said exactly that, David. We couldn't cope with what we had before. There is no way they could cope with what they are anticipating will be an absolute influx of people with um, mental health issues.
2: The other thing about this that's really weird too is, yeah, you know, look at the fact that across Australia, people. Hit bottle shops nearly as hard as toilet paper.
0: <laughs> and you're surprised by this? I was no, no, no,
2: no. I'm not surprised at all. But in a society that has a terrible predilection for violence behind closed doors, mm. to add functional drug addiction on a heightened scale to you know, already what. And again, I I don't like calling it a domestic violence epidemic. I think the numbers have probably always been bad. The only difference is people now talk about it because maybe they've got a chance to escape it. Yeah. But to add the pressure cooker of stuck at home and the pressure cooker, and it wouldn't matter if we banned alcohol tomorrow. People just make it. People just, you know, go by meth. Won't matter. I would have to imagine that meth dealers at the moment are making a fortune, particularly doing home delivery. But if we add into this mix lockdown predilection for violence Mm. and then a drug that makes people's mood worse. This does not bode well for the social lessons, the social experiences that so many people are going to come out of this having experienced worse things behind closed doors than before.
0: Oh, come on, guys. We can't end on a, on a miserable note. Oh, we are the optimists. <laughs> but this is what I keep saying. Like one of the things that I get people to do at the end of the sessions we run, I mean, we've been running the Human Hour, which has been phenomenal. Like I said, we've had people from all around the world. It's blown me away. We've been running fearless masterclasses where we, we basically teach people how to not avoid fear how the fear is actually not the problem. It's our attitude towards fear and our inability, you know, to actually allow ourselves to feel it and move through it in a way that's constructive. And we've also been playing with um, language and running sessions around how our words can impact not only our mindset, but how our day plays out, you know? And so such simple stuff, but it's just, What it's given me, these conversations with, well, we we've be up to 1,000, over a 1,000 people now in the last six weeks since I've been playing with this stuff. And it's all just been experimentation with online programs to see what works and whether people are willing to be vulnerable is I do have hope because one of the things we get people to do at the end of a lot of these sessions is to complete the statement in the future. And when, and again, it comes back to what I was saying earlier about the Project of Dear Australia, when you get people to paint a picture or visualize a, the future that they want, it puts it in their subconscious, you know which makes it more likely that they will take little actions every day that will hopefully enable some of that to see a little bit of light. And um, I must say that every time someone completes that statement in the future, um, the stuff that comes out, the smiles that puts on people's faces it, it is heartwarming because what people want is so much of what we're talking about in terms of the change we'd like to see for humanity. And that gives me hope.
1: Yeah. the So of- don't get angry about it. Basically don't get angry with what is be hopeful for what can be.
0: Mm. Yeah. And be responsible for what could be. Well, yeah. That's what I loved what you said, David about you're talking to these 18 and 19 year olds and saying, rise up. We need you, you know, you, are the generation that has the opportunity to change the shape of the future. Mm. And
2: importantly, they have to because they will raise the kids who will call whatever comes next, oh, that's how life is. They will determine what the generation after inherit and it needs to lock in in one generation.
0: But I would argue it's not just the 18 and 19-year-olds and that's what I keep saying to everyone in every session that we have we need as many of us as possible taking responsibility for shaping this different kind of future that we want to see because talking about it is great because it creates awareness. But if we're not willing to act and lead and demonstrate what we want to see through our behaviour, then at the end of the day, it's all just words, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's about being an exemplar. And I guess that's at one level what part of what I've confirmed to myself is the version of self I've always put forward when teaching or doing media or doing the podcast about do small, difficult things regularly is exactly what I've done under pressure. Mm. So I've kind of confirmed, okay, there's, you know, there's lots of exemplars in the world and they're all different, but I've been true to the version of an exemplar I want to be.
0: Perfect. So just keep doing that, David.
1: David always talks about not making mini me's. It's really interesting because you want to apply that to your specific points of view. Totally a valid, valid point. If we think about it more broadly, I would love there to be more exemplars, little mini exemplars. So, mm, but lots in, of in kind of a meta, of yeah, that's right, that's right. So in kind of a m- meta <laughs> analysis or whatever, the, the next level above, if you want to take it there, it's that. As an exemplar, you would would want mini-me exemplars in their own own kind of way. So I guess maybe a point to finish on, and you guys could expand on this perhaps if you would like to in your own way, is that as as you guys have already talked about, it's it's the statement that you want to make in the future, insert answer here, and you not only have the responsibility to try and act that out, but a significant power to influence others to envision their own future. Um, And so the fact that it's also empowering, not just a responsibility, I think is much more encouraging.
0: So what's your in the future statement, David? I
1: don't know, I'm trying to get the
2: phrasing right. Um, In the future, let's have a world where it's more important to try something new than to just recycle and slightly refine yesterday.
0: <laughs> what about you, Tim?
1: In the future, I would like to see everyone be responsible about what they say and put out into the world as if that is the most important statement of the day or the week or a given time frame. Mm-hmm. That every sentence that you say, to other people especially people that you have good relationships with but but everyone means a lot what people can draw from that means a lot and what people will learn from uh, learn from that and take with them from that um is influential what what you say and put out into the world is incredibly influential so i would like to see more people give that respect in the future
0: I feel like I've cheated because I've had a lot of time to think about this question because I ask myself it all the time and I sit with people asking it. So mine's going to feel a little bit more scripted. So I've said in the future, we put humans first. We prioritise the mental health of our society and provide people with the skills to intentionally adapt to their environment. Kindness, inclusion and care for others drive our decision-making process, enabling humanity to thrive.
2: Works for me. Mm.
1: I like enabling. It's good. Word. <laughs> well, Penny Lucasso, thank you for your optimism and insight. And thank you for joining us.
0: Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you for inviting me back.
1: Thanks, Penny. Lovely.
2: Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Auscast Network. Peace out.